Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast about mainframe and mainframe-related topics. We've really been, uh, I, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back too hard, but I think we've been hitting out of the park lately. We've had just week after week fantastic episodes. And, uh, you know, again, shout out to the Terminal Talk top-tier supporters. Um, yeah, you know, they, they they really love that last no, episode. N- nobody's nobody's buying that. You don't think anyone's buying that? We, we haven't gotten any requests to be top-tier. Okay, we've just been kind of lazy and busy, all right? Let's just cut to it. Let's say bit busy rather than Busy, lazy. you know, once a week. Kind of hard, people. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. Yeah, so uh, we have with us a very special guest. All our guests are special. I know, but, you know, I want him to feel good. He's sitting okay. in a chair over there. And, yeah. Um, we didn't tell him about the electrodes in the bottom. I guess so. it would be different. He said, we have a special guest for a change. <laughs> <laughs> so our guest today... Is Kristen Jacoby. He is the CTO for the microprocessor. Doesn't that sound impressive? I think so. My wife doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do um, as CTO for um, a chip? Yeah, so we usually don't use that term CTO. I, I usually say chief engineer or chief architect. Um, but you know, the, 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 sounds the, better. The, the real CTO. words don't really matter that much. <laughs> um, what I'm what I'm doing. So we, we are a large international team. We can talk about that a little bit later. Um, we're, we're a couple hundred people designing the microprocessor for the mainframe, and um, things have changed quite a bit over the last I don't know ten years or so. Um, uh, up, up till then. Um, silicon technology had this, you know, awesome rate of getting faster and faster and more transistors and everything. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't really happen that much anymore, right? The tra- we can still pack more and more transistors on, you know, on a on a chip of like a couple hundred square millimeters. Think of it as a large coin kind of mm-hmm. uh, uh, chip size. Uh, we get like seven billion transistors on that for for Z14, but the transistors don't get faster anymore. So now the task is really figuring out what can we do with all these transistors to provide value outside of just you know good old style performance. So things like accelerators, uh, the stuff that we did um, for faster crypto engines on Z14. That's sort of the underpinning of the pervasive encryption. Um, uh, that we've done there. So it's it's figuring out, my, my job is with obviously not me alone, with, with a larger team, figuring out what should we be doing, work with the software teams, figuring out um, what new functions and features do we want to implement, and then also figure out, you know, how much more performance can we squeeze out. We always try to squeeze out another 10, 15% performance, uh, and then guide the team through the implementation phase to get the chip defined, get it implemented, get it through the fabrication and the test floor, um, you know, finding the bugs, uh, figuring out what the methodology for, for, for testing is and things like that. So it's a broad, <laughs> I, what I, I really enjoy that. It's a very broad field that I'm working in. It's not like one specific thing and it changes depending on where we are in the project. I do different things like every day. Yeah, see, I just imagine you standing in front of this whiteboard drawing these lines connecting different gates together. And I guess it's more than that. Yeah, I, so I'm not I'm <laughs> that's real work. I'm doing emails <laughs> and PowerPoint. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, we we do have a couple of disciplines in in the team. So there's there's the discipline of the logic designer. Um think of this as the programmer who writes in a high-level language uh what the logic should be doing. Like when these inputs come in, then a f- couple of cycles later the following inputs should come out. 
And then we've got um, the circuit design or physical design discipline, which are the guys who take that logic design and turn it into actual transistors and lay out those transistors um, um, on, you know, on, on the chip and then wire up the transistors and, and use, obviously, all, a lot of that is tools-driven, but then a lot of manual intervention goes into, you know, connect the transistors with a wiring stack and make sure that everything works at 5.2 gigahertz and stuff like that. Huh. And then the third big discipline we have is verification, where they write test programs, they write um, um, exercisers that drive random input patterns into the chip, and they have a model of how the chip should be reacting to those uh, patterns and, and then verify that the right patterns come out. And it's not all just done at the chip level, like I say, but um, they, we, we carve the chip into units. Like there's a unit for the data cache and there's a unit for the instruction cache and a unit for the floating point unit, um, th- stuff like that. And each team, like the data cache team, consists of a logic group, of a physical design group for the data cache and a verification team for the data cache, right? And so we build stuff together from from units to cores to the whole chip, including like the, the shared caches and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, so w- which of the teams do we contact to find out how we overclock? To get, you know, yeah, there's a, that's probably the pervasive design team. <laughs> they, they, we have this logic that's called pervasive that's cross-cutting through like all the different disciplines. Um, and they do the clocks, they do the IOs and the trace for debug and stuff like that. But we generally don't recommend overclocking. <laughs> We're already running pretty high. <laughs> so, so what, if for those you know not really in the hardware game, what happened? It used to be um, back in the day that you buy a processor, you know, for your Intel box, and then six months later you could buy one that was twice as fast. Yeah. You know, and that, that kept happening. It was great. So, so, what happened to that that we we can't just count on silicon getting faster? You know, month after month anymore. Yeah. So, like you say, a, a couple. You know, a couple of years ago, every generation we'd be like twice as fast, right? Yeah. And, uh, I, I guess the way I look at it is, we we came when I joined IBM uh, back in Böblingen. Uh, we were designing at I believe 130 or 160, I forget nanometer yeah, miles. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, literally, like huge, <laughs> like frisbees. Yeah, <laughs> b- b- 160 nanometer devices or something like that, right? Um, we're down to 40 nanometers now, so things have just shrunk, and 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 the shrinking provided the performance. Like the smaller the devices got, um, the less. Uh, uh, I'm not a physical design guy, so I'm using I'm using you know layman's terms. Really, my my team's mm-hmm. probably some of them will cringe. It's good for The the smaller the devices are, the less um, charge you have to push around, and the less charge you have to push around, um, the faster you can you can switch from zero to one essentially, right? And and what has happened is the stuff has gotten so small that you're now at the atomic level where. Like the silicon oxide, which is which is one of the, the the key components of the transistor, is like a couple molecule layers thick, uh-huh. and and you can't scale atoms, right? It doesn't doesn't really <laughs> work well. Um, you can't order some of them small atoms. Yeah, no, it has those. Can I get a batch of extra small silicon? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I suppose it doesn't really work that way. Oh, yeah. And um, and because of that, we can't scale it much more, right? And so once once those those dimensions get to the point where physical scaling gets slower, you don't get that performance improvement anymore. And at the same time, um, we as microarchitects have been pretty busy coming up with 
super deep pipelines for high frequency and super scalar pipelines to execute, you know, a bunch of instructions every cycle in parallel and out of order. Yeah, so we've been pretty busy uh, as architects also to to come up with all these new features like uh, super deep pipelines and super scalar pipelines where multiple instructions execute in parallel every cycle and out of order execution where we in the process of reorder uh, reorder the instruction stream for better performance and branch prediction and big caches and you name it, right? All these things um, that we've invented as microarchitecture um, over the last 20 years. And now we're at the point where um, the silicon technology doesn't really scale anymore. And the big the big tricks for like getting 20%, 30% microarchitecture performance improvements, those have been played too. So, you know, it's not. I, I'm not going to say the well is dry, uh-huh. uh, but it's no longer as free-flowing as it, as it used to be, right? It's, it's, uh, uh, we've, we've got to um, stretch pretty far now to get, you know, the next ideas for performance. We, we, like I said, we still do that. It's, a, you know, maybe a 10%, 15% performance improvement every generation, but you've got to go through quite a couple hoops to, to get that. And so that's why I'm saying even more important in the future um, are those new functions and features like, you know, a crypto accelerator that enables us to encrypt everything or a compression accelerator that enables us to make, you know, disk uh, requirements, memory requirements for databases less or, you know, a sort accelerator or in the future, who knows what it may be, right, a connection to quantum computers. Uh, we'll see what comes, right? We, we've got some ideas. We're working I'm, I'm just over the last couple of days started um, a bunch of discussions for one of the next microprocessors. And I'm walking through basically the entire stack, having discussions with DB2 and IMS and ZOS and Linux and the blockchain folks and so on and so forth to figure out, hey, if I have all these transistors and I can't make the processor faster anymore, mm-hmm. what should I do with them? Tell me what I can do with DB2 uh, for DB2 with hardware to make DB2 better or Kix better or IMS better, right? So that's that's a growing part of what we need to do. And um, it's interesting because it, it does, you know, it does provide us with a perspective outside of just the nerdy world of, uh, of processor design, right? We can actually go to the cool stuff and do work with the software teams and, you know, learn about, learn about stuff that traditionally as hardware people we weren't really exposed to. I, I just think it's funny that somebody would consider Kix not nerdy. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> so it's all relative, I guess. <laughs> so going towards that that trend of like you know, keeping the CPs, you know, as a as a you know the, the way that we kind of know and love them, and building these accelerators that can kind of um, eke out extra performance in a specialized kind of way, is that kind of the direction that we should be kind of looking at for uh, accelerating software in a in a specialized way? I think that's a trend overall in the industry that if, you know, if you look at what's going on with machine learning, mm-hmm. um, uh, GPUs um, play a huge role in, in accelerating machine learning. And in fact, I believe that um, some of the algorithm development in that area is is sort of biased towards what can you do with the GPUs, right? You have a, a hardware capability and you've got a, a business problem and you're developing the, the software technology between those two, knowing about what the acceleration technology is, and you tailor your algorithms to that. So, yeah, I believe it's a trend that is not unique to Z, but the, maybe the, 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 the biggest thing that makes it unique for us is we're trying to do that not only on 
new types of workloads like like machine learning. We're trying to eke out benefits to existing enterprise workloads, you know, yeah. the stuff that's been there for 30 years, and we're trying to make it better by by putting new stuff in the processor. And yeah. Like the, the, the crypto example is, is a perfect example, but there's other examples like the compression stuff that we're doing that helps existing database workloads, right? And and, and that's a little bit different from what I see, for example, going on with machine learning and mm-hmm. GPUs. Well, that's always a, a, a great, you know, you get this and this and this and this. Oh, and by the way, you don't have to rewrite any of your code yeah, because it's exactly. using the, yeah. So yeah. when, whenever we get to, you know, put something out there like that, like per, for pervasive encryption or, or uh, compression or something like that, um, you know, I hope we get to see some more stuff like that. Yeah, no, that, and that, that has to be the goal. I mean, what I, what I, pervasive encryption is, is a perfect example. Um, we did a bunch of work in the microprocessor for that. Um, but I keep telling my team, right, we are, we are part of a much bigger story here, right? We are the, I guess the the technological underpinning in the CPU to provide the the raw performance, but then the work that was done in in the software teams in ZOS and DFSMS etc. to to just enable that that customer feature as pervasive encryption, right? That it it makes us part of of the bigger story, and and like you say, that the cool thing about that is transparency, right? Yeah, the ZOS team had to do work to tap into new functions in the hardware, but then at that point, ZOS becomes sort of an abstraction layer and from mm-hmm. an application perspective, you didn't have to do anything about it, right? You just got it from as an operating system uh, thing, and, and we need to find more examples like that. I think this is a really important differentiator of the platform and the operating system, right, is that when we do something in this space... It's from the ground up, right? It's, you know, most operating systems have to take advantage of, of stuff they hear about in the, you know, in the in the processor or the processor. People will say, oh, maybe we should take a look at this and, and kind of shave time off. Where where this is, the approach is from the silicon all the way up. One hundred percent, right? It's the the. The huge benefit – so the, the problems I've talked about in terms of microarchitecture and, and silicon um, being sort of not, – not exhausted, but not, you know, not quite as, as, as easy as it used to be. We have a huge advantage compared to pretty much everybody else in the industry in that we can work together from the silicon through the microarchitecture, the firmware, the operating system, the middleware, right? We we own that stack or large parts of that stack, right? So I, I have meetings, like I said, with, with DB2 and Kix and IMS about what can we do in one of the next processors. That's a pretty powerful thing for us to say, oh, yeah. I, can, I can tailor what I'm putting in silicon based on what I'm getting from, you know, my my, my peers in, in, in those software products. That That's... That's unique for Z and very powerful. I'm I'm just trying to picture this this future world where we have a, a set of of CPUs, some, and then we have a whole bunch of specialty engines. Do you see this as just more chips put together, or are we going to say, well, we've we really reached the max number of of general processors we need? Maybe we'll, you know, decrease that a little bit and have more of these mm. kind of specialty engines lying around it, or we just need to make bigger machines. Or no, I think so. The, I, I look at these functions and features as um, 
there, there's a there's a ton of different attach points, right? And if you look, we've we've done the ZDC card um, a couple of years ago. There was an FPGA we put on an I/O card, and it and it provided some great value. We're now bringing that onto the processor chip for one of the next generations. Um, we we do have a crypto card, but we also have crypto acceleration on the processor, right? We've got SIMD for analytics workloads inside the processor. We're adding a sort accelerator that's going to be sort of nest attached, not really in this in the processor core, but on the same chip, right? So I use those examples to show there's a there's a ton of different attach points, and we need for every idea for a new function or feature, we'll figure out is that feature best put onto an I.O. card? Is that feature best put onto the main chip but attached to maybe the L3 cache? Or is it best put directly into the processor pipeline? Um, and and it depends on the use case, right? And sometimes that use case um, evolves. Like when we started with the ZDC card and we put it in the I.O. drawer, we didn't expect, at least I didn't expect that uh, two or three generations later we would put it on the processor. But the success was great. The attach rate is great. We By putting it on the processor, we can get it to every customer and we further extend what sets of data it can be applied to because it's closer and faster when it's on the processor than when it's in the um, out in the I.O. subsystem, right? So you, the stuff evolves as we, as we learn about it. Do you think that there will come a time when when I, when I order a Z-Box, that I'll be ordering it with a, a specific set of chips on it, or is that is that too customized? No, I think we'll we'll have the same processor chip. I don't think that realistically we'd be building different processor chips. But you can order it with different features. Like you know, like I said, some of those accelerators will be I/O features, and then you just order. Than the, the I/O features and the number you need, okay. uh, but from a processor chip perspective, It'll be the same. it's going to be the same. And then, yeah. cool. I want to shift gears a, a little bit here. I was uh, um, looking you up on the blue pages here, and it says you have two hundred and forty patents. Really? Oh, <laughs> and that that I know that doesn't count the ones that are like in flight right now, too. Yeah, um, he's got as many in flight. I'm sure. Yeah, he's a um, brilliant man. Be- between Frank and I, we have, I believe, five uh, percent <laughs> of, of of your number there. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious about that process for you. Is is it a lot of um, you have a problem to solve, so you architect something around it, or is it kind of like you get your job done, and then when you get a day, you look back and say, okay, I guess that was a patent and that was a patent, or it's mostly the latter. So there, there's a couple instances where we do, uh, I'll say, a defensive patent mining, where there's a new field um, in, in the industry. Like I remember a few years ago, transactional memory was a big topic. Um, and and we started a patent mining group where we just thought through ideas on, on what we might patent just to protect IBM's freedom of action, right? So that's right. that example. Um, but for the most part, it's the you do your job, we do the you know the processor design, and then generally when when we're kind of wrapping one project up, we we get together the the whole team and we start writing down what are all the things that we think need to be protected, um, and then start writing the patents around it. And so I I was the transactional memory, um, I guess lead architect um, a few years ago when we did that, and I remember one day uh, we went to the patent board with seven patents about transactional memory and they looked at that and said no you got to break the first one into the following topics and you got to break the second one uh-huh. into those five stuff and then so out of those seven 
probably be created like 25 patents in the end. And, uh, <laughs> so that's um, 10% right there. Yeah. And so <laughs> there's, there's a couple of those um, examples where just being on on a on a on a fresh new topic just creates a lot of creates a lot of patents. But there's also, I mean, m- many people in the hardware design team have a lot of patents uh, just from. Like when the new processor goes out, we sit together and 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 farm. What what change? What did we change? And what of those things do we want to protect um, against? Um, you know, against competitors and, and preserve our freedom of action and things like that. Well, it's, it's kind of an important way of talking about patent farming, right? You're not you're not out there looking to come up with the next cucumber tumbler, right? No. What you're doing is saying, hey, although that sounds cool. <laughs> I thought, didn't I find a patent? It was, it was literally about how to tumble cucumbers. <laughs> but but, but the, the, the idea that we, that we look at what we've done and say, okay, what have we done that's, that's new and different and, and innovative? And, and it's, it's kind of an important nuance when we talk about patent farming. So uh, I have a couple of questions that are maybe a little less technical. Um, you don't sound like you started here in the U.S., no, I grew up in the Bronx. Oh, okay. It's a Bronx it's, accent. It's a Bronx oh, accent. Oh, wow, I knew it. There you go. Hey. No, I grew up in Germany. Um, I, I started in Germany. I started in the Böblingen Lab. Um, and uh, in 2002, I finished my my master's and PhD in Germany and then uh, started in Böblingen. And then uh, after a few years, I was, I was uh, lucky enough that there was a um, – a need for somebody to come here to Poughkeepsie on assignment to lead one of the units on the processor, the um, the uh, data cache uh, unit. So I came here for for three years with my wife, and we had an awesome time. and And moved back to Germany, and um, you know we we enjoyed it so much here in the Hudson Valley that after two years we just we said let's go back. Um, <laughs> so then uh, two thousand I forget two thousand twelve we came back to uh, to Poughkeepsie. Um, in the meantime, we built a house here, and you know, I guess we're here to stay. Oh, that's good! I can tell you, it's interesting to move across the Atlantic. There's some some good stories right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I was I was I'm, I, I've always enjoyed working in an international team. I, when I started with IBM in Germany right out of college, I was enjoying being in an international company and having all these interactions and occasionally traveling to the U.S. And I continue to enjoy that. I, I go to Germany every now and then, visit the folks in Böblingen. Uh, I go to Israel and India, where we have large teams. Uh, I, I enjoy that part of work, being being part yeah, of an was, international large team. Yeah, I was going to say, you're not just coming between Germany and here, right? You're, you really are an international resource and will go pretty much or, or send pretty much anywhere, right? Yeah, we have, I mean, we, we do have on the Z processor, we've got teams, you know, we've got guys working in California. We've got a pretty large size group in, in Austin, Texas. Obviously, uh, a, a lot of people here in Poughkeepsie, in Böblingen, in Israel, in Bangalore. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big team spanning, <laughs> spanning a lot of time zones. And um, in my role, I try to visit those different sites and work with the teams there and, and be, be accessible for like you know here's what we're doing explain the strategy things like that so it's nice for me to to be able to travel around and you know see see the different sides see the different countries and, and uh, cultures it's it's a good part of my job do you think that that has a lot of impact 
on the design, the fact that we've got a bunch of different people with a, a bunch of different ways of looking at it and kind of attacking the problem? I absolutely think so. There's there's different perspectives coming from different groups, right? And and you don't have the, you know, just the the Poughkeepsie stew. You you get you get you get <laughs> I've never heard it referred to that way. <laughs> but I'm gonna use that yeah, from now on. <laughs> You, you get like, for example, um, I'll, I'll use one example. Um, obviously, there's a large Linux on Z development group on the software side in in Böblingen, and they talk to um, the hardware designers in Böblingen. So, oftentimes, we do get a little bit of an of, of an impetus to think about uh, uh, concepts and ideas that help that help Linux out of that group. Right? It's just that there's more more of an affinity there to, to Linux, uh, and, and that brings in a different perspective, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's just one example. but That is something very unique and I think special, though, that a, um, a customer requirement or, you know, some some kernel of an idea, hopefully not, a, I don't want to say problem, but an opportunity to improve um, could land itself in a hardware fix, a software you know improvement, or a future generation chip design. Um, you know, in the place where it's going to land best. That's something very unique, I think. And it's cool that you get to work on that. Kind yeah, of thing. absolutely. And it sounds like you're spending more and more time with some of those software, especially in the middleware side. Is that caused uh, any change in the way you see things? Oh, absolutely. Oh, clearly. I mean, the uh, I, I believe that every time you talk to different groups, you 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 grow your perspective and you understand what some of their challenges and constraints are, but you also understand better, like, what do the customers want? Like, you know, talking to folks in DB2 and understanding what they are working on and, and what their customers are complaining about changes perspective on, on what we are doing, right? And, yeah, that that's definitely happening. Like, the whole, like... Uh, performance, reliability, accelerators, like how do you balance between those different things? You get a different perspective and you talk to different people. Cool. So uh, we do this thing on, on the show a lot. Um, imagine yourself uh, Ginny for a day, <laughs> right? Um, you're, you're running the company. What would you want to do that you haven't been able to do if you were running the company you know, and say, okay, you hardware guys, this is what you're going to work on. What would you do today if it was if it was your company? Wow, that's a tough one. Eh, too late. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Thanks. <laughs> well, let's try this another way. Let's let's. Jenny's getting up on stage. She's just about to announce. You know, the mainframe is taking a brand new direction. What do, what do you kind of hope she's she's you know what area do you hope she's steering in? I hope. I hope she's she's saying two things. I hope she's saying here's all the new things we need to worry about and the new workloads we want going after and incorporating it into the cloud. But I also hope that she's not forgetting about um, the existing workload, existing customers, and that we can't just ignore that stuff and and forget about it. I, I think the challenge for the mainframe is we need to we need to protect and preserve the old workload. Um, and, and keep those customers happy. Um, at the same time, we need to grow workload either by bringing new workloads on at those customers or bring different and new workloads on with new customers. And things like blockchain and cloud uh, is, is one example, right? Yeah. Or uh, some of the Linux One uh, engagements are examples of that. 
And I always worry that, and I understand why that is, but, but we, we, we have the tendency of when we need to drive something in a new direction, we are overemphasizing the new stuff. And then sometimes it feels like all the old stuff isn't worth anything anymore. And we got to make sure that we don't lose sight of the old stuff is important too, um, both in terms of there's people working on that, and we don't want to have those people think they're no longer working on something important, but also in terms of like the business perspective of this is there's a lot of money there, and let's just yeah. not give up on that that pile of money in hopes of building a new big pile of money with yeah. the new stuff. That uh, old we, quarter we is worth that. just as much <laughs> as the new shiny one. Yeah. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I, I, I do have to agree, just milking the old quarters doesn't provide us with the growth we need. So we right. need to find the new quarters while preserving the old quarters. Yes. <laughs> well, and hopefully um, polishing up those old quarters so that they, <laughs> they have that new Absolutely, uh, yeah. Well, this is this has actually been great. We I think we've used uh, all of our time up, and we really appreciate um, you coming and talking to us. I know you know hardware is important. You guys have been very busy lately. We had to reschedule this recording with you fifty times. So. Yeah, well, we've had to reschedule a couple of times for various <laughs> trips and you know yeah, whatever. Things, well, we know you guys are busy, so it's cool. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, my pleasure. Old man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.